Hello and welcome to episode 92 of On Liberty, coming to you live from Poughkeepsie, New York today. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Emma Hurst, MP, member of Legislative Council of New South Wales for the Animal Justice Party. Emma Hurst, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to lead off with asking you what animal justice has to do with classical liberalism. We are, of course, a, a think tank and a program dedicated to classical liberalism. How could we extend that to apply to animals? Look, when we talk about individual freedoms and we talk about, um, you know, looking at, you know, human rights and extending that beyond our own species um, and also recognising the link between, I guess, the environment and animals and people. My background before I became a politician was actually as a psychologist. And so I did a lot of work around the link between human and animal violence. And one thing that we do know is that people who are violent are violent. So somebody who is likely to be violent towards humans is also likely to be violent towards animals. And we can see that when we look at, you know, mass, mass murderers, for example, they often start um, with harming or hurting animals in a particular way. Um, and we see the same with domestic violence situations. And we've recently just um, reviewed all our laws in New South Wales to recognise the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. Um, and of course, the environment is also linked. If we don't look after the environment, then we, how, how are we going to protect humans and how are we going to protect the animals that live in these environments? So we really work by this whole theory of one welfare where we need to protect all of those aspects. We need to protect humans and animals and the environment. And we need to expand those, um, those liberties and those freedoms and recognise those freedoms and rights for animals, for non-human animals, as well as human beings. If, if I think back to the era of classical liberalism, which would have been the middle of the 19th century, of course, work animals were generally worked to death, uh, you know, treated absolutely miserably, and people took that for granted. Now, of course, over the last 150 years, we've come to have a much more sympathetic view, not only to animals, but I think expanding out our circles of sympathy to first other human beings in our own countries, providing you know, welfare support, other human beings in other countries. We no longer like the idea of bombing civilians in time of war. If we look at you know, all the horrors coming out of Ukraine, should we be extending that circle beyond just humans to animals or really our let me forgive me for putting it this cruelly, are animals just animals? Well, one thing that I think that a lot of people have started to recognise now is that animals are sentient. They have the ability to feel pain and fear and they have the ability to suffer in similar ways to we do. And I think that part of the recognition of that is the uptake of companion animals. And so, you know, large numbers of families now have companion animals living in their home. Now, you talk to... Um, anybody that has, say, a dog or a cat in their home and, and you say that your animal doesn't experience emotions and, and they will disagree with you. They can often tell when their animal is happy or sad um, or nervous or anxious. And so we see those capabilities in animals and I think that's where a lot of people are starting to expand out their compassion beyond the human race and recognising that we're just simply another species of animal sharing this planet with multiple other animals. And when we can see the sentience of cats and dogs that we live with, um, it's really not much step of a step further to start to think about 
bears, for example, or elephants. And beyond that, it's not much of an extent to think to pigs. Um, and pigs is a really great example because pigs actually have an intelligence level of a six-year-old child. Um, and they're said by scientists to be even more intelligent than dogs. Um, and so we really then start to question, you know, what are we doing to these animals? Um, you know, if you keep a pig in a sow stall or a um, or, or a, a cage where they can't step forward or backward for their entire life, um, is this ethical? Is this justified? Um, and when we think about the same thing happening to one of the dogs in our home, we say no. Um, and I think that's where humankind is really starting to expand that compassion beyond our own species. But is that more about the animals or more about us? So I, I mean, I have to admit, you're, I'm dubious when you say that pigs have the intelligence of a six-year-old child. I mean, six-year-olds can talk, can play, can play simple games. I, I, I mean, and what if they couldn't? I mean, what if I could prove that pigs were stupid? Would, it, would then it be okay to treat them cruelly? Or is, is the bar against cruelty more about how we are as humans than about how intelligent the animals are? Look, I think that, um, and, you, and you raise a really good point about the intelligence, and it's not simply about the intelligence. Um, I mean, the, the aspect of pigs is interesting because you can actually teach a pig to play um, play video games, for example, and they can be taught how to play soccer, um, which I think most people are surprised about. But you're okay, right, I'm it's not. <laughs> I, I'm a psychologist here. I am not a psychologist. <laughs> Um, but but it, it is beyond intelligence. You're right. If an animal has the ability to suffer, then we need to consider it from that aspect um, in the same way as, and, and you say, you know, and it's a great one to relate back to, to human beings as well. And um, Peter Singer, who's a philosopher, talks a lot about this. Um, you know, you don't rate human beings on intelligence and rate how you treat that person based on their intelligence. Um, we have a general recognition that, you know, every human being deserves kindness and um you know, support when needed and things like that. Um, and I think that that is going to start to expand towards animals. Our laws are very backwards. Um, our laws recognise animals, and this is this is fairly universal across the world, recognises animals as property. Um, but going back to the example of um, having a companion animal in your home, if you say to somebody that your dog is a piece of property, that they don't have any more rights than your couch or a table. Um, people are quite mortified when you explain that to people in the streets. People don't think that their dog is, is a chair or a table. They don't think of them as a piece of property. They recognise that animal as a sentient being and they recognise that that animal deserves some level of protection from harm. Um, and that's a lot of what we're doing is actually working towards making sure our laws are in place to protect animals from acts of cruelty, which are human-caused. Now, I, I notice you say companion animals. I'll admit I say pets. Is that an intentional use of language on your part? Um, it's interesting. I mean, well, part of it is because in, in New South Wales, where I'm an MP, it's called the Companion Animals Act, and so the actual oh, okay. legislation refers to animals as companions. Um, but, yes, there is kind of this division in the animal protection movement about the word pets, um, and some people find it um, condescending, I suppose, this whole idea of petting an animal. Um, but then other people say, look, it's just a, a, a well-used word and, and it has a lot of positive connotations. Um, I suppose, you know, I don't often get into the debate around what words we use um, because I think that that sort of takes away from 
the much bigger issues and that's that our laws are failing to actually protect these animals, you know, whatever we're going to call them. Now, we are a live show, which means we do take viewer questions. The questions have been coming in fast and furious. Anthony, Benjamin, I promise we're going to get to you. But I first want to ask Emma about her, I was about to say pet issue. I'm very sorry. It was just stuck in the brain. But about an issue, about an issue you, you've really made your own, and it's a very serious issue, and that's the issue of, of uh, puppy farming. Could you explain to us what puppy farming is, what's going on, and what you hope to do about it. So puppy farming is the intensive factory farming of dogs for a pet trade industry. Um, so where I am in New South Wales, there are no laws to outlaw intensive factory farming of dogs. Um, so there's there's no cap on the total number of female breeding dogs any one person can have. Um, you know, we're seeing development applications go through councils for, you know, over 300 female dogs on one property. Really? Those females will live in small cages. There's no, under the law, they can stay in those small enclosures. Um, I think it's for 23 hours and, and 40 minutes a day. Um, they're only required to give them a very small amount of exercise and they can be forced to pump out litter after litter for her entire life. Um, the other thing that we've been exposing recently is that in New South Wales, if you have a criminal record you can, for animal cruelty, you can still run one of these intensive puppy farms. Um, so that's something that we're pushing to outlaw. Um, Victoria, which is another state here, has outlawed it. Um, now, because they're a neighbouring state of ours, the problem is a lot of these puppy farmers have simply moved across the border into New South Wales. Um, and this is a real issue, and, and it's an issue in the states and in other places as well where you've got these animal cruelty laws that are um, state-based and one state makes, you know, progressive and good laws to protect animals and another state doesn't. Um, it just floods into the other state where um, there are very little laws in, in, in regards to puppy farming. You know, it, it means that because puppy farming is legal here in New South Wales, we've had um, hundreds of um, applications for further um, puppy farms here in, in New South Wales. It got worse during the pandemic as well because people were in lockdown. We had what we called the puppy pandemic where everybody suddenly wanted a companion animal at home um, and that increased the demand. And it also allowed puppy farmers to hide their practices even further um, because you couldn't go and visit the mother dog in her home. You couldn't see the mother interacting with her puppies because of right. isolation rules. Um, and so that made a real flourish of puppy farms. Um, and the situation is just getting worse here uh, while there's no laws to protect companion animals uh, from this industry. Well, again here, I wonder how much really what we're talking about is not a need for legislation, but a need for uh, proper uh, exposure. Uh, I mean, it, a lot of people want to adopt, not adopt, I guess, purchase an animal from a top breeder. Uh, nobody wants to uh, yield or acquire a, a puppy from a puppy farm. Mm -hmm. uh, is that really, I mean, is this a matter for legislation or is this a matter for journalists to be exposing the conditions under which uh, puppies are being bred? 
Um, so look, we have done a huge amount of media on this and we've actually also been in the middle of a parliamentary inquiry into the puppy farms. And one thing that's come through really strong is that it can't be up to the public to actually police this because there's so many ways that these intensive um, puppy farms can actually hide under the radar because there's no oversight system, because there's no tracking system, because there's no licensing system that actually exposes where these facilities are. I mean, there are so many ways that somebody could run a puppy farm and consumers wouldn't wouldn't even know. One consumer actually came. Um, she thinks that she accidentally bought from a puppy farm and she said that she was online desperately trying to find out whether these breeders were good breeders and she was up on Google Maps having a look at the facilities where the animals were and trying to zoom in to see if there was sheds or if there was running yards and, um, you know, you ask questions. I mean, how do you know how many uh, female dogs that person has? It, well, it, it becomes you know, the same very way I buy hen i buy eggs and the package says it has a certification of 20 hens per hectare whatever it is and i have no idea if this is really true i trust the certain the certifying authority i mean shouldn't we just leave this to civil society to solve through the creation of breeding uh associations that have minimum standards that then put a seal of approval so at the moment, we do have breeding organisations, but they have no legal oversight into a lot of these facilities. So they create their own standards. And certainly, if you go to one of these registered breeding organisations, um, you can be more sure that there are certain standards being met. Um, but they don't have the funding to actually oversight these facilities and do regular checks. Um, but also, Beyond that, you don't have to be a member of one of these organisations either. And a lot of animals now are being sold online on sites like Gumtree. Um, and we actually did an investigation of one of these online sites and we found millions of dollars worth of puppies being sold with, um, you know, fake microchip numbers, for example, fake photos. Um, and so there are complaints about this. But in your example, when you talk about, you know, this, this advertising about how many hens per hectare, there are laws in place that say that, you know, you cannot put up those sort of fake advertisements. Um, but for, for this industry, I mean, we're talking as well about, um, you know, sentient beings, we're talking about dogs. And, I, and, and as you say, there's no demand for animals from puppy farms. So why allow them to exist in the first place? Right. Well, some people love their pet chickens too, but I'm going to move on. Uh, Benjamin uh, suggests that the only species that attempts to treat other species as equal are is humans. All other species treat other species as prey, predator, or symbiotically. They never treat each other equally. Uh, so, and I'll get to his question. Sorry, the screen continually scrolls on me. Uh, it, it seems to him that only in hyper-wealthy countries are animals treated as anything other than animals. So let me ask you first, is that true that only in wealthy countries are animals treated as anything other than animals? And second, is that relevant? How You must hear these criticisms all the time. How do you respond to them? Um, look, it's an interesting question. And, you know, and it, it brings me back, actually, when you were um, asking me a question before about um, you know, people using animals, you know, to, to take carts out and to, you know, deliver um, items. And um, the the founder of one of the, the one of the largest and well, she's very uh, not well known actually because she keeps the name very private. But she was involved in actually setting up the animal protection movement in Australia and then right across the world. And she set up a whole lot of charities in India. Um, and 
the work that they do is they actually create, they um, fundraise and get enough money so that they can provide veterinary treatment to to the animals that, that people are working with. Um, there's this real symbiotic relationship. And look, it depends where you're going in the world. I think that that's really too black and white to sort of say that in wealthy countries, we, we care about animals in other countries, you know, that that's not the case. Um, you know, you brought up the example before about um, you know, cows in certain countries being considered sacred and so they're looked after. Um, but, you know, that happens all around the world um, where there's those symbiotic relationships. And the difference is, is that when people are looking for their own personal survival, it's a very different place to when, you know, we are in a very privileged world that we can um, go beyond that. And that's where, you know, we do have companion animals living in our homes. And look, a lot of people consider these companion animals to be family members. Um, and I think that that's really important. Um, I know I spoke to a friend recently um, who can't have children. And so he described um, his companion animal as, as a fur baby. And I think that that's probably a term a lot of people have actually heard before. Um, and people often think about those animals, you know, as a family member. And, you know, is that something that is only exists within societies that are privileged? Possibly. Um, but that doesn't mean that that, that, that that animal doesn't, isn't sentient and doesn't, you know, exist in their own world. And it doesn't mean that we don't work to protect them either. Well, the classicist Evie Ryu, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, once said that uh, that Homer gives more pathos to the death of one horse in the Iliad than to all of the suitors in the Odyssey when the 20 suitors are just killed with, <laughs> with a single arrow. Um, Anthony wants to ask, if animals do have feelings that should be protected, what will carnivorous animals be able to eat? <laughs> Again, I'm sure you've heard that a lot. Uh, Anthony, we're not three years old here, but uh, but Phil, it's a it's a fair question. Um, what, you know, if we should pay respect to animals, how do we make other animals pay respect to animals? Look, I think that we need to recognise that, and, and the work that we do, as I said, animal cruelty is is human caused, and that's what we're trying to work towards. We're talking about you know, having hens in battery cages. In Australia, most hens are still inside battery cages where they can't step forward or step backwards. Um, that's where most of our eggs are coming from, still from these battery cage hen systems. Um, we're talking about, you know, is that cruelty? And, and that is so much worse than an animal that is using their instinct for survival. Um, we're not talking about stopping carnivorous animals from being carnivorous. Look, nature is cruel. That's not what we're trying to stop. What we're trying to stop is recognising where what we're doing is potentially cruel to animals and where we need and to Anthony, deal with that. I, I don't want to go too far. It was a bit of a, 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 Anthony wasn't being that serious. He does point out animals are often cruel to each other. But it's a very serious question. It's one that I would post to you and that I've myself used and as an example in my own writing. He points out that in China and Vietnam and Korea, dogs are widely considered a food item. Uh, the butchering of dogs is common. Uh, it is increasingly considered a source of embarrassment by the governments there, but societally, um, it is a well-established practice to eat dogs. Yet, of course, you know people in Australia are horrified by it. And in California, they've outlawed the eating of dogs. Isn't this just a you know, a, a relative cultural practice, not something about uh, the appropriate treatment of animals. Is, is there anything fundamentally wrong with using dogs as a food meat? 
I think what, what Anthony's getting at is actually really, really interesting because this is something that we do talk about quite a bit um, and it goes back to what I was talking about with Peter Singer and speciesism. And so all of our cultures, we, we have what, uh, you know, an idea of speciesism. So what we consider to be immoral to happen to a dog, we allow to happen to a sheep, for example. Um, and one example I gave at a law lecture series that I spoke at recently was the practice of mulesing, where we cut a large chunk of flesh off the bottom of a sheep without even so much as pain relief. Um, and that's a practice called mulesing that happens here in Australia. Now, if you did the same thing to a dog, it would be illegal and you would be charged. You could be even looking at a jail sentence for doing that to a dog. Yet it happens to millions of sheep here in Australia. Um, and that's our speciesism. And, and it goes exactly to what Anthony was saying in regards to, yes, in some countries, they think it's acceptable to do this to a dog. Now, you look at our own backyard. As I said, we've got hens in battery cages. We've got pigs in sour stalls. Um, we've got mulesing where we're cutting off um, flesh off sheep without pain relief. So we need to look in our own backyard as to what's happening in our own backyard rather than criticising overseas. But right. there are practices overseas which are just as cruel as well, like the Yule and Dog Festival. I take it for granted that you'd rather raise standards for sheep than lower standards for dogs. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, as I say, it's it's about it's about recognizing what the problems are happening here. Um, right. And I think that it's very quick. People are very quick to point the finger overseas and to say what other people are doing are unethical. But there are a lot of unethical practices that are happening to animals here in our own backyard, um, as well as overseas. But I guess the focus of that comes down to our own level of cultural species and that we're taught. Well, James has a question, and I, I hope we don't get to it. We have lots of questions coming in, and I'm very selfish. I want to ask you questions for myself, but viewers first. Um, James asks, is civilization, quote unquote, empathy or empathy for us? And what could an abattoir or a factory farm do to be ethical? Uh, is it about pain, ethically slaughtering, or is it about right to life, you know, not slaughtering at all? It's a really interesting question. And um, as many people know, I'm a vegan. Um, I went vegan when um, I remember, well, actually I stopped eating animals when I was quite a young girl. I remember holding a hen and the hen was purring. And I realized that this hen showed joy the same way as my cat shows joy. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I can't eat my cat, then I can't eat this hen. Um, and then I found out that in the dairy industry that male bobby cows were taken from their mothers and sent to slaughterhouses and killed and the breast milk was taken um, that was designed for the calves and in the egg industry that all males that are born are, are macerated at one day old and it was really like the lights went on and, and I went vegan so I'm an ethical vegan. Um, but as a political party you then need to look at this from a very different perspective um, and I suppose what we really focus on within the Animal Justice Party is promoting these alternatives and it's already a booming industry. Um, you know, we need to be putting more funding into these plant-based alternatives, um, into cellular-based agriculture. And I saw the end of um, James's question there, you know, what do we feed our cats and dogs? And this is where cellular-based agriculture really comes into play. And it's something that is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, and it's a great solution, particularly for cats, 
um, you know, who are obligate carnivores, they're not vegan animals. Um, but how do we deal with this dilemma if you're worried about, um, you know, the cruelty for an animal that does end up in a slaughterhouse, but also the environmental damage and also the fact that, you know, very often they're not, these, these are not natural diets for a cat or dog anyway. You know, they don't eat cows um, and they certainly don't eat 4D meat, which is what cat food is, which is animals that arrive at a slaughterhouse dead, dying, diseased or severely disabled. Um, you know, that's problematic to be giving those foods to our companion animals to begin with. Um, if we can create cellular-based agriculture where we can actually, um, in a Petri dish, create, you know, a budgie gut and feed that to the cat without actually harming any animals, um, then why wouldn't we? Um, and when I've spoken to a lot of these people who are creating these cellular-based meats, they're talking about removing the cholesterol, removing the saturated fats, actually removing the things that are really damaging to our health and making sure that these products um, are, are, first of all, ethical and environmentally friendly, but also aren't damaging our health in the way that a lot of these other products are. Now, I've been dying to ask you a question that uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now is a very tough question that may end up costing you some votes. So, so I want to think carefully about this. Um, it's very self-indulgent. I live in Darlinghurst. I live. I go around Rushcutters Bay all the time. There are thousands of dogs everywhere. My estimate is that about at least 80% of them don't even know their own name. They don't know how to sit. They don't know how to take any command. They don't know any better than to literally pee and poo in the middle of the sidewalk. Their owners, if they're conscientious, pick it up. But the owners have not even trained the dog to wait to poo instead of pooing literally on the sidewalk in front of a restaurant. Is this a form of animal cruelty? Look, I think that it's something that we need to work towards to educate the public about how to best care for their companion animals. And this is something that also came up at the Puppy Farm Inquiry. Um, when you start to talk about legislation, and I always look at everything that's brought to me with the lens of legislation. Um, now, I also work with organisations, for example, that are getting cats and dogs out of medical experimentation facilities. Um, one woman I know who adopted a dog that came out of medical experimentation, he's 12 years old, Beagle Cross, he didn't know what a lead was. He didn't know what a name was. He didn't know what, what grass was, you know. So, you know, these animals, you know, if you bring them into society, then they've got a lot to learn and they've got a lot to, to actually be trained for, to actually understand what the world is. Um, so we don't necessarily know the background of each of these animals. Um, and I think that a lot of that comes down to actually educating people on how best to actually care for those companion animals. And I think it's a really missing element. Um, there's certainly some courses that are being run through primary schools now around, you know, how to care for your companion animal. But I think that we need more than that. I think that, you know, if you're going to look to adopt an animal, that there almost needs to be some kind of level of, um, I mean, I'm not quite sure how it would work, to be honest, but there definitely needs to be something. And I think that, sorry? Licensing for humans? That was something that was actually brought up at the inquiry. A lot of breeders did want people to have licenses. Um, look, I think that that's going to be difficult necessarily to put into practice, um, but there definitely needs to be more done. And I think that there is a role for uh, for governments and for parliaments to make sure that there are education programs out there so that we make sure that um, companion animals are living and integrating with, with, these, with our human lives as well as best as possible. 
Is it ethical for people to keep pets at all? Look, I think it is. It, it's a really interesting one, and it's obviously one that the Animal Justice Party gets a lot. I think that the majority of companion animals that come into people's lives, there's a real symbiotic relationship. Um, I, I know I've seen people with dogs and I've seen how happy those dogs are when people come home. Um, yeah. But, of course, there is a really big difference between households and that's a really big problem. Um, we do hear of cruelty cases all of the time um, and that's another really big issue. You know, how do we balance the fact that some animals are going to really good homes and have wonderful lives and the fact that some animals could be going to homes where they are, you know, treated with violence or they are neglected. Um, how do we overcome those things? Right. Now, we do have to wrap up. I would like to ask you a final question that's a bit out of left field. I hope you don't mind. But I'm always interested when people are sitting in parliaments who are not lawyers, who don't come from a law background, who actually have, forgive real careers <laughs> with real living outside of this legal bubble. Uh, how have you found it being a psychologist? I understand you're professionally a psychologist. How does it feel to be a, 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 a psychologist in parliament instead of being a, a lawyer in parliament? It's interesting because I think that, you know, in parliament that, that there is, you know, a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of barristers within parliament. But I think what creates uh, a much better worldview is when people have come from different areas as well. Um, I, I mean, I certainly have somebody uh, within my team that has that law background and a lot of my work previously was working particularly in the laws around the Protection of Cruelty to Animals Act, so I'm very familiar with that specific act. Um, but, you know, I find that when you go into parliament and you speak with people who have had different life experiences, it creates a much better parliament because I'm able to talk about, you know, the link between domestic violence and animal abuse, whereas it seems that, you know, this wasn't really talked about and included into legislation until we got elected. Um, so everybody can come with a different lens. You know, we've got nurses, we've got people that have got, you know, worked within um, uh, hospitals in different avenues, and they often can come in and bring um, a lens for what, what it's like for those workers and some of the issues within the healthcare system, for example. So um, I think it's really important to have a parliament full of people with, with quite a lot of different backgrounds. So it's been really useful. Emma Hurst, MLC, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. See you again on On Liberty.